everyone. Uh, welcome to Conversations in Software Development, a podcast on software development intended primarily for students. I am your host, Borja Sotomayor. Uh, I am a senior lecturer in computer science at the University of Chicago, where, among many other things, I teach a class on software development. In this episode, we will be discussing the business of software development. Writing software doesn't happen in a vacuum. It often happens in the context of a business, and it can be useful to understand exactly where software fits in a business. Uh, to explore this topic, I spoke with Q McCallum, uh, a Chicago-based software consultant whose current focus is on guiding companies on their first steps in data science, machine learning, and AI. Uh, but with more than two decades of experience dealing with a variety of software companies, uh, Q has accumulated a wealth of knowledge on how these companies operate. Uh, so I wanted to pick his brain on this subject. Now, uh, Q is one of my favorite people to chat with about software, and we ended up talking for more than an hour, which I managed to edit down to about 25 minutes. And while we started on the subject of the business of software development, I'd say that our conversation ended up revolving more around the realities of software development, which often happen in a business context. In any case, here, is my conversation with Q McCallum. So how about you tell us a little bit about yourself, Q? Uh, you know, I would, I would love to do that. I think uh, when, you, when you explained this podcast to me, you said that it will be released to the general public, but it's also very much for your class. Um, so I bring that up because there are a lot of things I could talk about in relation to how I am in the professional sector, but I think it's best to focus on the things that would be most relevant and, and interesting to your students. Um, Although I guess before I begin, I'd also like to say thank you uh, for inviting me to join you on this podcast. You know, you've invited me to, to guest lecture with your students, I think, two or three times now already, and, and they've all been great fun. Um, so I, I guess where I'm going with this is I am just flattered that you think it's worthwhile to actually record what I have to say. <laughs> and I mean, uh, what you have to say is interesting. And, and I think that uh, every year that you've come to speak to my class, like there's always been students who, there's always been at least one student who who would tell me like, oh, my favorite guest speaker was Q. He was really interesting. Wow. I think that means the check cleared, which is which is good. <laughs> about money. But I mean, jokes aside, I, I do want to focus on what's important to the students because, um, you know, something I've mentioned before when I've done this in front of the class is that I, I've done guest lectures before for your class and other people's classes. and I, I can empathize. I do remember what it was like being a student and someone comes in and your view is, okay, I don't know who this person is. I don't think they have any impact on my grade. I don't see how they're going to really help me get through this quarter. So why am I listening to you? Because you've got five minutes, right? Like it's, um, it's even scarier than a stand-up comedy audience. So at, least, at least as a comedian, they kind of know who you are. You get the applause and they'll give you a few seconds to really start yourself in motion. And after that, it's just, all right, it's the wolves. Um, so as far as what's relevant to your students, I mean, this is a course on software development and I have been, I've been doing some flavor of writing software in a professional sense, uh, for more than two decades now. I started my career back in the late nineties, but I will also say that even before that, um, as a kid, I think since like the single digit ages, I was writing software on my parents' computer, learning, I think way back then it was basic and something else. So it really should have been obvious to me before I got my university degree that I would end up doing something with technology and writing lots of software because that's just what I've been doing for so long in my life. Um, as far as what I've done professionally uh, since the uh, dot-com era, I started off writing lots of Perl for web development. That's because Perl was just the hot language back then for any sort of text processing or web development. 
also writing lots of tools for systems management because I was working in places where you know, we had to write a lot of our own tools just to take care of day-to-day -day things with the machines. Later got into web applications and asynchronous messaging, lots of enterprise Java, also writing some trading engines in C++ because at the time, uh, and I think even still to a certain extent today, C++ has a reputation on, uh, in the world of trading. And today, I, my title is no longer officially software developer. I'd say about probably 10, 12 years ago, right as the term big data was really starting to become a thing, that's when my career shifted. And I was moving away from pure systems administration and pure software development and more into analyzing data uh, for fun and profit. But what I found most interesting about that and why it's still relevant today as far as writing software is because a lot of people look at that field um, whether they call it machine learning or, or data science or AI, and they they assume that it's all this magic that we call algorithms, right, and artificial intelligence. And really, a, a good portion of that job still involves writing a lot of code, right? So that's why, even though I no longer have the title of software developer, um, I'm still writing a lot of code these days. And so I'm very thankful that I developed this skill early on when I did, because it's proven useful throughout pretty much every phase of my career. So the, the 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 subject of this episode is the is the business of uh, of software development, and I think that a lot of students don't understand like how diverse you know uh, software development businesses sort of can uh, can be. I think that a lot of students a lot of students look at software from the outside looking in, and you know they're familiar with what they use on you know uh, various websites they use on mobile apps, uh, software they might be running on their desktop. Um, and while it is true that there is a lot of software that gets developed, um, that that gets you know you, you work as a software developer and you're writing uh, something that is going to be used by by end users that is going to be released publicly in some way, uh, but there's a lot of software that gets written uh, out in the in the world that doesn't really fit that 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 mold. Um, so you know you having uh, you know either worked for a lot of companies or in, in, as a freelancer or consultant like having interacted with a lot of companies what what other sort of like uh, in, in what other manners do you see software being uh, like built uh, in companies yeah I would say uh, to, to answer that let's first start off with with what you were talking about before a lot of the software students have seen um, that they've used on their own for example everything from an, an app on their phone um, to software on their computers that they're using to write papers or, or write spreadsheets whatever so let, let's call that off-the-shelf software right so named because Back in the day when there were actually physical stores, you could enter to buy software, which sounds, I just dated myself. So, and so the, the, the name just sort of grew out from that to just refer to any sort of software that was made by some company whose entire role is to make software to sell to you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like a spreadsheet or word processor, that sort of thing. So that said, um, like, you, like you said, Laura, a lot of companies wanted to create their own software. And there are a number of, I guess reasons for that, but the overarching reason, uh, the, the umbrella reason, boiled down to uh, one of two things, right? It's either one, there is some software that we want to use, but it's so expensive that we can't afford to buy it off the shelf. So we're just going to build our own or build our own equivalent thereof, right? Um, and sometimes price is a good reason to, that, to do that. Sometimes it's a bad reason. Sometimes it, it's a good reason because Maybe there's some piece of software and you only need a small fraction of its, uh, of its capabilities, but you can only buy the entire thing at once and it costs just far too much money. So you'll, I'll, we'll build our own just to fulfill that one particular use case and we're good. Um, and the other reason to build your own software is because 
there is something that uh, you want to do, something that you want to automate, and there really isn't commercial software, off-the-shelf software that does it. So you have to build it yourself. And this can be everything, or, and by the way, the sort of sub-reason from that one is there is something that you need to do in your company that is just so special, or maybe you just found something very, something that gives you sort of a secret edge over the competition that you're going to have to build it yourself and keep it secret and stuff, mm-hmm. right? And so when you, when you think about those definitions of, or those reasons why companies will build custom software, that opens up a lot of doors, right? That's everything from, um, from trading firms. I've, I've worked in firms where we've, we've built our own trading engine that will um, read and market data and place trades according to some strategies that our researchers have developed. That's one reason to build your own. One case where you build your own. Uh, another case is you work in a large company, you have people doing all sorts of manual labor, but more of the manual labor of just lots of shuffling paper around, lots of um, you know manual entry of, of some sort of data or something. You know, that's a case where you can take a task that is what I, what I call the three pillars, right? It is dull, repetitive, predictable. But it meets all of those, you can probably write some sort of software um, to automate that work. And what that means is that you free up the humans for far more interesting work or for work that is far more, um, I guess you could say work that, that really requires the human brain more, right? Um, mm-hmm. But point being, like, those are, those, those are the big reasons why companies would build a custom software. It's just that they have something they need to automate and either they can't get it off the shelf or they don't want to get it off the shelf. That's why. So, so a lot of software developers, uh, you know, end up working on software that, uh, uh, that, you know, in one sense, like never sees the day of light in the sense that, that, you know, it's, it's never going to be used outside the confines of that company, but, but that software still brings a lot of value to the company, right? Oh, it absolutely does. And I'm glad you used the term value um, because a lot of people, when they think about software, to your point, you think about a commercial software house and their goal is to make a profit. So they're focused purely on making money by selling it. Um, when you think about the value custom software can provide, it goes back to what I was saying before about automating something internal. Um, because what that means is if your company, every company has some sort of business model in it, and that usually boils down to making money by selling something. So one way to make, one way for that company to make money is to actually sell whatever is the thing that they make. But another way to make money in an indirect sense is to save money, right? Um, and this is, a lot of this is just econ 101. If you have 50 people doing some sort of very dull paper pushing, um, they're going to make some number of mistakes because they're humans, they're going to get bored and they're going to drift off and mistakes will cost you something. Um, or let's say, whatever sort of paper pushing these people are doing, um, you just see more and more of it coming in. Um, people do not scale well, right? You can say that for, I'll just make up numbers now. If a human being can handle 50 reports a day and suddenly we've brought on more customers and now we're going to be seeing 500 more reports a day, I need to handle, I need to hire 10 more people, right? Whereas software scales in a very different way. You build the software once and there's an asterisk on the end, I'll come back to that, but you build the software once and in theory, as long as it's sufficiently efficient and you have you know, robust and large enough hardware to run it, you can scale up to some near infinite number of customers without having to bring in more people. So that's how you save money. Instead of having to hire 10 or 100 more people, you pass off to the machine. Now, back to the asterisk before we go on. Um, like I said, you, 
you hand it off to the machines and you, you build it once and you're done. Not really. Um, one of the things about software is that it is never really done. There is an old, there's an old number rolling around that says about 80% of the total cost of building custom software is in the maintenance, right? Um, a lot of companies make mistakes. And, and I'm glad you bring that up because I have used that exact same sort of like phrase in my class where I sort of tell students software is never done. I think that uh, a lot of people, this is something that you just don't get to experience as a student because there's always a finality to like, you know, working, doing a homework assignment or doing a project. Like when the class is over, the class is over. Like you don't have to revisit that ever again. And I think most students don't realize how much time and effort, uh, you know, is needed to maintain software. Oh, no, ab absolutely. And it's funny because one of the things you mentioned just now, right, that as a student, you take all these courses and it usually boils down to, um, you know, make make a widget or create some piece of code that produces some number X and turn it in by 11.59 p.m. and then you never see it again, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I know before we started recording, we were just talking about my early career and working with people from all different walks of life. And one of the things I noticed is that did I meet a number of people who had formal CS degrees who are great developers? Absolutely, I did. Did I also meet a number of people who had CS degrees who didn't fit well in industry? Absolutely. And usually when they didn't fit in, it's for precisely the reason you just said. They had spent four years learning to write it, hand it in, and walk away. And this notion of building software that needs to run more than once, building software um, that you're going to have to extend six ways till Sunday, which means having to write it in such a way that it is extensible and then it's not very painful to add new features. That's, that's not, and that's not the student's fault, mind you. That's just something that very few mm -hmm. schools seemed to teach at the time when I started. Maybe it's changed since then. I do know um, one of my friends, he's a lecturer at University of Chicago. He's created this amazing course where he gives his students a, a view of the real world of software development. I'll introduce you to someday. I think you'll like him. Who 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 is that? Let me let me just write it down so that because I'd I'd be interested in having a chat with that that fascinating person. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but that's one of the reasons I enjoy coming to your class to guest lecture is because you through creating this class you're you're providing a service to to the professional software industry and that your students leave this class realizing oh it, it's more than just. I turn it in by 11.59 p.m. and I'm done, all right? As you teach them in this course, well, no, we're going to have code reviews, we're going to add features, we're going to do this, that, and the other, and it just gives them a nice taste of the real world. Well, and you, and you know one thing we did this year for the first time was uh, last year the students worked on, on a project, uh, and this year instead of just deciding, oh, let's just come up with an entirely different project, we just said, no, we're just going to keep developing the project from last year. So this year, students inherited all the code from from, from last year, uh, which, which, by the way, when I told last year students, like, by the way, I hope you realize that next year students are going to be working on your code. They were mortified because like, <laughs> that never happens in a class. Like you never you you sort of feel like you're writing code and you feel, well, the only victims of this code are going to be the, the poor TA who's going to have to grade this uh, this code. And now it sort of dawned on them, like, wait a second, like other other students are going to be using this code. And I feel like it's sort of impressed upon them holy crap, like, I need to make sure this is actually well-written, it has to be well-documented, etc. Absolutely. There is a line, and I am, sadly, I didn't prepare this, and I don't know who said it. We can look it up after the episode. But there, there's a line you hear a lot in the software dev world, which is, write software for the poor bastard who's going to have to maintain it two years from now, uh, because that poor bastard might actually be you. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. So <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot to be said for thinking of the future in software development, which, which gets back to your original question, which is, 
The one, the one I've heard is always write your code as if the person who's going to be maintaining it is a murderous sociopath who knows where you live. <laughs> okay, there, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a flip side to that joke, which is debugging code. It's like being the detective and the murderer at the same time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but no. But point being, that that takes us back to I'll pull us out of this rabbit hole that I that I dug for us. But that takes us back to your original question, mm-hmm. which is why companies build custom software. And so when I said that you know you write it once and it replaces so many people, that's that is an oversimplified truth. There's a big asterisk on the end. But as long as you realize we're going to build this software and the software itself never ends, but in theory, you know the the marginal cost of adding new customers or whatever, whatever be far cheaper than the marginal cost of adding um, new employees to handle this manually. You know, that's where software really shines. But the flip side of that is you've now built something that you need to maintain forever. And, um, and it's not just having to add new features and fix bugs, something else that bites a lot of companies when they build custom software. Um, if they don't have a lot of in-house experience building custom software is the realization that software constantly changes. Even if your business requirements haven't changed, um, the underlying operating system on which your code runs, eventually that's going to be what's called EOL or end of life, which is a nice way of saying that the mm-hmm. manufacturers won't support it anymore, right? So from just a pure IT policy perspective, you need to upgrade uh, your operating system, which might affect your code. You might need to change providers. You might need to do all sorts of things that have nothing to do with your underlying business model or what you're trying to, op- or what you're trying to automate. But in the end, you're still going to have to change the code a lot. And just getting used to that mm-hmm. will save these companies a lot of trouble and save the developers doing the work out of trouble as well. Um, so, so, so bringing sort of like things back to the, 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 the role of, of, of software developers, um, you know, um, you know, are, are, do you think that software develop like it, it, regardless of what the, the, the company's like business model uh, is, uh, whether they're doing off the shelf software or building custom software for themselves or others, et cetera, um, are, are software developers just sort of, you know, cogs in the machine, like, you know, code churning like machines or, or do, do they, or ha- do they have the potential to like play other roles within the, uh, the company? Um, the answer to that question is yes to all of the above. Um, Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, there are situations, and and when I say situations, I mean a combination of the developer, him or herself, and then the employer. Uh, There are situations where it is entirely possible for a developer to spend their entire career just writing code. That's what they really want. Um, But as a software developer, you have so many other options within a company to move around and learn things. Um, in fact, going back to what we were talking about before, this notion of the business of software, mm-hmm. um, whether you're building software uh, that will only be used inside your company or whether you're building software for someone else, um, think of all the different people and roles involved. And when you're a software developer, if you so choose, your work can touch all those other roles. For example, as a software developer, could you sit in the basement and only look at specs all day and write code? Yeah. Could you also get up and talk with the product people, talk with the salespeople? Um, if you're lucky, maybe even get out and talk with the end users of your software. Yeah. In fact, I would highly encourage that um, because 
that makes you a better software developer because you're getting to see how your software is being used and created in the wild. Um, it also makes for better software because you're going to get a chance to see how it's used and how you can predict what changes might come down the road and you can account for those. Um, and also sort of circling back around to your original question, that opens the door for other roles you can take on in the company. I mean, one of the great things about the tech sector is that it's, I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's easier than in certain cases to move around. I know people who have gone from, they've started off as software developers and they were great at that. And they you know, eventually got bored and wanted to do something else. And they were working in a, in a sufficiently large and supportive enough company where they can say, okay, last year I was a software developer. You know, this year I formally joined the product team or this year I became a project manager or I moved in or actually I know a couple of people who have even gone from um, actually hands on keyboard writing software to joining the sales team and going out and selling it. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it's a great way to spend time inside of a company learning how it operates and then figure out what else you want to do because most of the hops you would want to make they're usually one or two hops away from being a software developer, which makes it a lot easier for you. Mm -hmm. and, and I know that when when you've uh, when you've spoken in my class, you you've sort of described this as sort of the the the, the cheat codes of uh, <laughs> uh, of making it in the in the software industry. Are are there are there other like cheat codes that uh, uh, that that you think people should be aware of? You know, um, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the, the cheat codes. I would say. Actually, I, I, I can take you to what was usually the last slide in that presentation, you know, which was the common thread. And the common thread among all of those quote-unquote cheat codes was get away from your desk and talk mm -hmm. to people. Um, like I said, talk to the product team, talk to your stakeholders, talk to the sales crew. Anytime you can get out and just see who is using your software, who is selling it, why it's being built, it's better for you and better for them. So that's why I'd say I could rattle off the six cheat codes here, but instead I would just say anything, you know, be creative, anything you can do as a developer to get away from your desk, go do it. Now, now definitely, right? You want to do your job. You, if you're hired as a software developer, then ostensibly you're there to write some amount of software. So make sure you do that. But also make sure you accept opportunities and quite frankly, even make some of your own opportunities to get away from your desk, maybe get outside of your team and see what else your company has to offer. And this is, this is true in any company, no matter how small, but it is especially useful in the larger companies, uh, just because mm -hmm. one of the secret of large companies is that they tend to be islands unto themselves, right? They tend to own the entire vertical, which is well, for the students that's industry speak for owning every aspect of what the company needs. So it's fairly self-sufficient, right? For example, um, that's why so many large companies have an, a sizable internal software development effort. It's because they have enough development going on they can afford to build out an entire department and so on and so forth. And what's, what's great about the larger companies is that because they're so large, because they have so many different departments and so many different roles, um, it's much easier for you to have several jobs within the same company than it is to leave and try to start fresh with a new type of role in a different company. Right. You've already proven yourself in your original company. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, with that, I think we can uh, wrap things up. Uh, Q, uh, thank you so much for uh, talking with us today. Yeah, and Borja, thank you once again for inviting me. I realize this year is a bit different uh, with the pandemic. I wasn't able to come down and visit the students in person, which is it's always fun to do that. But I'm really thankful that you're doing this podcast so that the students can still 
indirectly meet with all these industry professionals and, and learn some new tips. And as always, thank you once again just for having this class. This is something I have not seen elsewhere. And I think the students that, that take this class of those who enter industry, they're really, they're really going to have a leg up over kids who haven't seen any of this before. Now you're making me blush, which thankfully, since we're doing a podcast, you can't see. <laughs> uh, anyway, that that is it, folks. Uh, bye. Right. Goodbye.